And now, Father, we come once again to this blessed of all books to study and to learn about your glory and how you have sovereignly moved over the ages of time to accomplish all of your perfect will. We praise you, O Father, most of all for the ultimate act of grace on our behalf and love in that you gave us your Son. And we know, Father, from your word that you gave him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And he became poor that we would be rich in you. And so we come to worship you, and we come to learn from you. Oh, Father, give us teachable spirits this morning and humble to bring ourselves under your word. Protect us from error, I pray, and fill us with your spirit. May your spirit find us docile in his hands this morning, accomplishing in us what we didn't know needed to be accomplished, some unto salvation, some to greater sanctification, all of us. And all of it will be your good work. And so we praise you. Praise you for the gifts, the spiritual gifts that you've given us. As, as we look at this issue this morning, and I, I know that it um, in the church is controversial, and I don't mean to be controversial this morning, but Father, only faithful. And so we pray, Father, that you would use it, use all of it for your glory, and change our hearts and our minds to conform to your word. And Father, this I have prayed for myself, as I pray it now for your people. We give you praise for it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. We are still working through 1 Corinthians, and we are in chapter 12, and have been in chapter 12 for a little while. Um, this is the one passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians that I dreaded to get to, uh, because we knew we were going to have to tackle this issue that has caused so much controversy in the church. And, uh, and I don't like being controversial. I don't want to be controversial. And so I hope you don't find this message controversial. Some of you don't believe that. It's true. Um, but, uh, but this is scripture, and so we need to wrestle with it as best we can and come to the best conclusions we can. And so I think that this morning will be a time of uh, not just instruction, but encouragement to you that the word of God is sufficient for everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. And so far in our study, we've looked at two categories of spiritual gifts. One is the serving gifts, and the other is the speaking gifts. We've done those. If you've missed that, then you can pick up the CDs of past weeks. Today, however, it's time to finally tackle the subject that I know many of you have been waiting for me to tackle. I know that because you ask week after week, when are we going to tackle this, these gifts? And then here's the question. How should we understand the gifts of healing, miracles, and tongues and the corresponding interpretation to tongues? These are gifts mentioned in the text that I've been preaching through, uh, that we've been studying for the past couple of messages, and frankly, I have temporarily set aside those gifts so that we could invest a whole message or two on them, because I think they belong to a category of gifts all to themselves. And before we continue, however, let's have the, let the Lord have an opportunity to speak here through his word. Let's stand together in honor of his word and read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning with verse 4. And I'm reading from the New American Standard. If you could just follow along with me, that would be great. 
1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things and all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit, and to another, gifts of healings by one Spirit. And to another, the effecting of miracles, and to another, prophecy, and to another, the distinguishing of spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. Now, the focus of our study this morning lands on verses 9 and 10, where Paul mentions these uh, four gifts, the gifts of healing, the effecting of miracles, and tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. The reason I see these gifts in a category by themselves is because I believe every gift of the Spirit, while every gift of the Spirit is necessary and good for the church, some, I believe, were designed to be as temporary as they were powerful. And let me say that again. While I believe that every spiritual gift listed in the New Testament was for the church and for the church's good, some of the gifts, specifically these four, were designed to be as temporary as they were powerful. And my desire is to help you see that from the scriptures. Again, I don't want to create controversy here, and I don't think this will be controversial to us, but I do want to reveal what I believe the text is teaching. And I think when you come out of here today, you'll at least have a better understanding of this view of the spiritual gifts, whether you agree with it or not. So these three particular gifts are intended in my my understanding, to be temporary gifts that would be used by the Spirit for very specific and temporary purposes and then be discontinued. So there, I've tipped my hand. That's where we're going on this. And, uh, and I hope from here for the next couple of weeks, not next week is Easter, um, but this week and the week after Easter, to come back to this issue and reveal what I believe is, is the biblical teaching on this. So before we get started in it, let me give you some definitions. Three gifts here. Uh, well, actually four, but uh, let me give you the basic definitions of each of the gifts. Healing, the gift of healing is exactly what it sounds like. It's the spirit-empowered ability to make sick or injured people well. Um, this is not James chapter 5, call the elders and pray for healing. I believe that's in full force today. I believe when someone becomes sick and, and they just don't seem to be getting well, or they're injured, or whatever, and, and, and desire healing, then they should call the elders. And the elders should come and pray with them, and they should confess sin. It may very well be that the person has sinned, and that's the reason for the sickness. Maybe not. But maybe, in any case, pray for healing. And, and we've seen that here. We've seen that in our church. God healing people. Not through a man, not through some kind of healing service, but rather in response to the prayers of God's people. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, right? That's not the gift of healing. That's prayer. That's trust. It's faith. And God loves to work powerfully through the prayers of his people. Secondly, miracles. 
Miracles, we need to understand this, a miracle is a supernatural intrusion into the natural world and its natural laws, explainable only by divine intervention. Now, there are many experiences in life that people call miracles. I remember in college, just about every time I took an exam, I thought it's going to be a miracle if I pass this exam, right? Um, Or maybe as you were coming in this morning, You know, you're thinking it's going to be a miracle. We're so late. It's going to be a miracle if we can find a parking place. Uh, Not a miracle. Not a miracle. Maybe providence, um, but not a miracle. You may be thinking, you may be sitting uh, by your telephone thinking, there's a certain person in the body I'm praying for, and I know they have a need, and I really want to encourage them, and and I've been thinking through some scriptures, and I'd really like to speak to them, and I'm... I'm just praying about the opportunity to talk to them, to encourage them, to give them some scripture to meditate on that I think would help them. And Lord, give me an opportunity to bless this person. And the phone rings, and it's them. Um, Miracle? No, that's providence. In some cases, providence, really, I think, uh, in my mind, uh, is more amazing than a miracle. For God to step into time and, you know, kind of flick the water and make it ripple out and then step back into eternity, uh, that's a miracle. That seems pretty simple. But to arrange all the circumstances of individual people and get it all to come together at just the right moment to accomplish what he wills, that is so amazingly complex. In either case, I think it's just important for us to understand that there's a difference. Um, A tornado may have ripped through your neighborhood and destroyed the houses before yours and the houses after yours, but skipped over your house. Miracle? Not a miracle. Not a miracle. Providential? Yes. And you and your neighbor can argue. They'll say, listen, tornadoes are are weird and wonderful things, horrific things. You just never know what they're going to do. They're notorious for skipping and jumping and popping. You say it's God. I say it's just the weird nature of weather. Um, when a miracle happens, there is, there is no other explanation. For example, um, crossing the Red Sea on dry land, providence? Nope, miracle. Um, Red Sea crashes in just as the Egyptian army is seeking to pass through, providence? Miracle. It's a miracle. Blowing the trumpets, And the walls fall down, miracle. Go to the seashore, catch a fish, and pull out a coin to pay the taxes. (laughs) Now that's a miracle. I mean, for me, even to catch a fish is a miracle. No, that's providence, I guess. That's providence. Um, We need to understand that, that miracles are unique. Miracles are unique. The gift of miracles is when a follower of Christ is empowered by the Holy Spirit to effect true miracles in the world. And generally speaking, in the New Testament, among the apostles, especially in the Gospels, the, the kind of miracle that you see most often is uh, the, uh, the miracle of um, casting out demons. That's the one that is most often accomplished. Miracles are not uh, usually uh, money-appearing Inefficient mouth, that's unusual. In the mail, yes, that would be providential, but not a miracle. Um, but when a man is empowered by the Holy Spirit to do things like taking a severed ear and putting it back and it's whole, 
causing a blind man to see, causing the, uh, a lame man to walk, causing the dead to come out of the tombs. That's miracle. Number three, tongues. Tongues, again, I'm stepping back into the controversial, but uh, that's okay. Um, tongues, I believe, refers to the ability to speak unlearned but living languages. And I'm talking about the first century, so it would include Koine Greek, which is now a dead language, but it, would, it was a living language then. Interpretation of tongues is exactly what it sounds like. Um, we'll talk more about this in a couple of weeks, what tongues is about, and, um, and a deeper understanding on that. But just understand that uh, if I were to stand up here and begin speaking Russian to you, uh, that would not help the church, um, those of you who are non-Russian speakers. However, if Charlie got up and interpreted that, that'd be a miracle. And that would be helpful to the church. Um, but we'll see what its place is in God's economy as we get there. So these are the three gifts, or four, if you include the interpretation of tongues, I want to talk about this morning. And the main point I want to make, just so I can tip my hand right at the beginning, is that each of these gifts, as powerful as they may have been, were designed by God to serve a temporary purpose for a short period of time, and then to come to an end while all the other spiritual gifts continued in the church, and continue to this day. The question you should be asking right now is, how can we know that the gifts were temporary? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked. We're going to spend a couple of weeks talking about that. Today, let's begin by putting uh, these gifts to the test, as it were, to see if they are for today or for a past age, as I have suggested. And so if you're taking notes, what are the tests? Test number one, the test of God's stated purpose. The test of God's stated purpose. Now, all three of these gifts, I believe, fall into the category of the miraculous, they fall into the category of the miraculous. These are not, they do not correspond to the natural. Now, if your gift is service, obviously it corresponds to a natural inclination to serve. If your gift is leadership, administration, obviously there's a correspondence between your natural gift and even an unbeliever who happens to be a great leader. You know, Genghis Khan was a great leader. leader, leader. He was a looter too, but leader. <laughs> oh my. And um, Donald Trump is a great leader in his organizations, but unbelievers, spiritual gift, no. But there's a direct correspondence between leadership and uh, uh, the, the spiritual gift of leadership and that which is natural. Not so with these gifts. There is no natural correspondence when it comes to healing, miracles, and tongues, and interpretation of tongues. Each of these gifts was intended to show that God is making his presence known by their use. More than that, they were intended to authenticate the ministry and message of the person who was using that gift. For example, Jesus performed many miracles. He healed the sick. He restored sight to the blind. He even raised people from the dead. But you, did you ever wonder why Jesus did miracles? I mean, he came to die. The whole thing about our salvation, the substitutionary atonement, had everything to do with him dying on the cross, spilling his life's blood until dead, 
three days in the tomb, rise again, and go home to heaven. Why the three years? Why 33 years? But specifically, why the three years of miracles? Have you ever asked yourself, why did Jesus do all these miracles? And I think we would understand this intuitively. But some might say it's because he was concerned for the poor and he downtrodden. And since he's there, and he's got three years to kill before the cross, and he's compassionate, he's got these miraculous powers, let's use them for good. Well, he was certainly gracious and merciful and compassionate, but that's not the reason for the miracles. Um, what, what's the reason for the miracles? Let's, let's start this by turning to John chapter 2. And I'm going to be taking you to several texts. This will help keep you awake, and it will help me be orderly in my presentation of this. John chapter 2. John chapter 2, um, any student of the Bible knows, John chapter 2, miracle at Cana of Galilee. And that miracle was, class, turning water into wine. That's correct. And so Jesus is about to do his, his, his first miracle here uh, in John chapter 2. This is the occasion of his first miracle, turning water into wine. Now, about this miracle, and we're not going to read the whole account. You know this story. Jesus, um, uh, Jesus tells the servants, go fill these jars. Now take some to uh, the master of ceremonies. He sips it. Wow, it's wine. We poured water in. Now it's wine. End of story. That's it. Almost. Because John puts a little commentary in here in verse 11. And this is what he says. This, this is uh, John 2 verse 11. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And this is really significant John calls the miracle not a miracle, but a sign. Now, what you may not know is, unlike the other gospel writers who just seem to hammer miracle after miracle after miracle, sometimes miracle in, in miracles, like uh, when Jesus was headed to, uh, was it Jairus' house? to raise his servant from the dead on his way. Somebody touched him, and he says, who's touched me? And the woman with the issue of blood gets healed on his way to a miracle. He's doing miracles inside of miracles. Not so with John. John records eight miracles, and he calls them, very specifically, signs. He chose eight, only eight, plus the resurrection is the ninth. And these are the signs of Jesus' ministry. Now, why sign? Why not miracle? Why sign? And that's a good question. And this is the first thing that we need to understand here. What do signs do? What do signs do? Well, they point to something. And what did Jesus' sign at Cana of Galilee point to? John says very clearly that it pointed to his glory. And so the turning water and the wine showed everyone, at least the servants and the disciples, we don't know if anybody else really knew what, would ha what was happening, but word was about to spread. Besides the apostles, Jesus himself and the servants who poured the water in and found out, oh, it's turned into wine. Maybe nobody else knew. 
But the people who did know, what did they do? They glorified him. Or at least, John says, they saw his glory. Or to say it a different way, maybe like this. Everyone's thinking, wow, Rabbi Jesus, Rabbi Jesus, Rabbi Jesus. He is an amazing teacher. If he were in Fort Worth, he'd have the biggest church in town because nobody teaches like him. And then we find out he can turn water into wine. That, that is so far beyond anything anyone can do. Jesus is not just a good teacher. He is something else. He's glorious. He's at least a prophet. He's at least a prophet. And it says, and the disciples believed. Sign, glory, believe. That was the whole point of his eight signs. And then the massive sign of the resurrection. Now, we don't have time to look through this, but turn with me to the end of John, just to substantiate this further. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Here is the end, okay? I just showed you the beginning of John's gospel. Very first miracle, Jesus, uh, John says Jesus' first miracle was a sign pointing to his glory by which the disciples believed. And here he ends the gospel by saying this. This is John 20, verse 30. Therefore, many other, what's the next word, class? Signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, meaning his gospel. But these have been written, these eight, plus the resurrection, have been written so that, here's the purpose statement, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's not a prophet. He's the promised Christ, the Son of God and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Implication, you weren't here to see it, but I was. And I picked out eight signs of Jesus, and I've written them down for your benefit so that you would see his glory and believe. Now turn the page again to the right. In the book of Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up before the thousands who were there in Jerusalem at Pentecost, and he preaches that powerful message by which 3,000 people believe and come into the church. Talk about an administrative nightmare. And we have our little growth problems. Can you imagine one Sunday morning opening the door and people start coming and coming and coming and coming, and someone calls the fire marshal and we're all in trouble. But 3,000 people, how do you minister to them? But the, um, uh, Peter stands up and says, Acts 2, verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and what? Signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. And we don't have time to read the rest of this. You can read it later today. Peter goes on to make the point. The signs were the evidence that he is the Christ. Christ has come. You rejected him. You killed him. But it's not too late to believe. And 3,000 of them said, we're ready. We're ready. 
The miraculous gifts were given by God to be a sign from God that God was doing something new. He was fulfilling his promise to send the Christ who would preach a new message. Consider this. If three preachers showed up into town, assuming anybody would even go see them, but if three preachers showed up and they preached three contradictory messages, who would you be most drawn to to believe? that their message was from God. The one that was doing signs and miracles. If the other two weren't, you know who would believe. You know who to believe. That was the purpose of the sign. Yes, there are thousands of teachers in in Israel. There's false prophets. There are true prophets. There are uh, good sound teachers. There are very few. We have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And all the others who were teaching all kinds of weird and false doctrines, who are you going to believe? And now we got Jesus. And Jesus comes and he says, he's the son of man. The fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. That he's the son of man, the son of God. The one who's come on God's behalf. He is the anointed one, the Christ. He is Messiah. I mean, how are we going to believe that? He can turn water into wine. That's how. He can give sight to the blind. He can give legs to the lame. He can raise the dead. That's how you know. That's how you know. It was a new message. It was a new teacher. How was anybody going to believe unless there was authenticating miracles? And so God gave Jesus the capacity to do signs, miracles, wonders, And he also then, Jesus gave this capacity in Mark 16, gave the same capacity to a few of his associates, the 12, who were also able to exercise the sign gifts, which served as divine authentication that they too had come with a message from God. And now we have a name for these gifts. They are the sign gifts. They pointed to a new message given by these new messengers who could not be mistaken as being those who are from the one and only true and living God. The apostles and a few close associates of the apostles were also able able to exercise these signed gifts, which served as divine authentication that they too had come with a message from God. Here's just a sampling, Acts 14, verse 3. In Iconium, Paul and Barnabas, Luke says, spent a long time there speaking boldly. Here's their message with reliance upon the Lord, who is bearing witness to the word, that's the message, the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. New messengers with a new message. How are they going to know it's from God? Because God shows up and he does miracles. Miracles that can only be concluded. There's no way, there's no scientific or any other way to explain this, God stepped out of eternity into time for a moment. He did this thing, and now he's gone. That's a miracle. And Paul writes in, to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, speaking of apostleship, he was defending his apostleship, and he says this, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you, he's speaking of by him, with all perseverance, by signs and wonders 
and miracles. He's defending his apostleship. This is what apostles do. The apostolic gifts were given back in Mark 16, 17, and 18, chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, and they were still exercising them. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, just briefly. I just want you to see that this is all over the New Testament, not just Paul. Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4. The author writes, After this, that is, the gospel, was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed or made believable to us by those who heard, that is, the apostles. Now watch this. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. It's the same thing again. You've got God's messengers showing up. Why would anyone believe them? Because along with the messenger and the message comes God through the miracles. So how do we know that the gifts were intended to be temporary? First, by the test of God's stated purpose. And so we see, believer, beloved, that these gifts of the Spirit were given by God as a divine witness that the messengers and the message were true. It bears mentioning here that when it comes to the gift of tongues, it may be that more than just the apostles possessed this gift, and I'll show you why in a couple of weeks, but Paul makes it very clear in a statement that, that he records for us in 1 Corinthians 14, 22. He says this, So then, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Tongues are for a sign. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Yeah, but what about the other verses in chapter 14 that seem to indicate that Paul expects us to speak in tongues, or at least some of us. And that's a great question, but you've got to wait until we get there. We're getting there. We're moving along. We've got to take it one text at a time, right? So that's the first test, the test of God's stated purpose. Now, we're only going to have time for one more test, but I think this will be really helpful to you. The test of redemptive history. The test of redemptive history. And by that, I mean from the creation of the world until now. I realize that in Revelation, there's going to be more of this stuff. We're going to have the two prophets, and they're going to do miracles and signs and wonders authenticating their message and their authority. But from creation until now, it's the only redemptive history that we have to look back on. So let's think about this. It's very important, so try to stay with me. It's not going to be terribly complicated, but I want you to think about it, and I want you to remember this when you go. When you read through the Bible, it becomes apparent that there were really only three, three prominent periods of indisputable, miraculous activity at the hands of men, which rival or surpass the miracles that were done by the apostles in the New Testament. There were three times, there were three periods of time in which miraculous gifts were done by the hands of men through the Spirit's enabling. They are these. Number one, the period of Moses and Joshua. Number two, the period of Elijah and Elisha. And number three, the period of Jesus and his apostles. 
Now, this is important because many in the modern charismatic movement will tell us that God is doing miracles all the time through men. In fact, he wants you to have a miracle. This week, today, you should claim your miracle. Today. I was going to bring my Robert Tilton green hanky in this morning. Um, Maybe next week. No, not on Easter. I dare not. But God doesn't want you to have a miracle today. God wants you to read about the glorious miracles he's done and be humbled by it. This kind of teaching is false. That God wants you to have a miracle today. And we need to be warned not to listen to such reckless teaching as if it were consistent with Scripture. And this happens all the time. All you got to do is turn on TV. You got these guys who claim that they've raised people from the dead. It's unbelievable. Uh, One guy I read about this week who said he's raised more than 100 people from the dead. Nobody knows who those people are, no authentication. He won't give names, nothing. Say, well, why is he doing that? He's doing it for the same reason the apostles were, to establish his authority is from God so that he can get what he wants from you. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. It's also important to note that each of the three historic periods of miracles lasted, listen to this, None of them lasted more than just over 100 years. And again, we're talking all of redemptive history. So if you're a a six-day creationist, that's between six and 10,000 years. So 10,000 years, we only have three periods of time wherein God was performing bona fide miracles through men in concentrated form, and neither of those three periods lasted more than, maybe a little more than 100 years And so we're talking roughly 300 years out of 6 to 10,000 years were the only times in redemptive history when these kinds of miracles were being done at the hands of men. In each case, think about what God was doing. God was establishing in each case the authenticity of the new revelation that was being brought by means of these specific men. And in each case, God was doing a new thing that people would be hesitant to believe, thus warranting what the Old Testament refers to signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. Now, in the case of Moses and Joshua, let's take this apart. The new thing was what? God was calling to himself a people, a nation, Israel. And he brought them to Sinai after performing all kinds of awesome. And you know I'm very reserved with that word, and I want you to be reserved with that word. Not every, the, new, the car that you just bought is not awesome. The plagues in Egypt were awesome. Nile, seen the Nile? I saw the Nile this year, and I got thinking, that thing turned to blood. Unbelievable. I mean, it's so far beyond our capacity to get our minds wrapped around. The frogs, the lice, the hail, the darkness. I mean, the Passover, the death of the firstborn, these were miracles, beloved. Why was God doing them? Because he was doing something new. He's doing something new. 
He's calling a people to himself. He was going to make of them a nation, a covenant people. He would be their God and they would be his people and they would follow him wherever he led them. And he would make of them a nation and he granted them a land that flowed with milk and honey and all of those things. And he was giving them new revelation. The new revelation starting with the Ten Commandments and being fleshed out throughout the entire law of God given by Moses in the first five books of the Bible. So revelation equals scripture. He's giving new scripture. He's doing a new thing and he's doing it through scripture. He's giving new revelation. And he was doing it to establish that Moses and Joshua were truly messengers of God. And so they were given the unique ability to perform miracles. Now, I want you to see this. This is so amazing. Exodus chapter 4, and confirming. Exodus chapter 4. I mean, imagine being Moses. I mean, you're just trying to take care of your sheep. You left Egypt 40 years ago. You're now, can you imagine? He was an 80-year-old shepherd. And, he, and he's looking for his, yeah, and you senior citizens, God's not through with you yet. God's got lots of work for you to do, perhaps. Moses was 80 before God even called him to go back to Egypt. 80. He's tending sheep. He's hobbling up this hill. Probably not hobbling. I think God gave him incredible strength for another 40 years of ministry so that he was just as strong as when he was young. But he goes up this mountain, and he's looking for his sheep, and he finds a burning bush instead. And God tells him to take off his shoes, and he takes off his shoes and he has a conversation with God and God tells him, I want you to go back to Egypt. You remember that place where you really blew it? The place where you murdered that guy and your own people turned on you? And he's going, yeah, nobody forgets that. And God's telling him, I want you to go back and I want you to tell them that you're my man. You have come now 40 years later to lead them out of Israel. And Moses, Moses gets the problem here intuitively. Look, God, I tried that. I made a mess of things. Those people hate me now. There's no way they're going to believe me. Why should they believe me? Why should, I, when, why should they, when I get back and say, God has sent me back. This time, this time it really, really sent me back. You can trust me now. I know I blew it before, but you can trust me now. I mean... They're not going to follow me. They are going to kill me. They're going to kill me. Okay, so this is where we pick up. Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And then Moses said, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, The Lord has not appeared to you. And the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, It's the staff. And he said, throw it to the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. Now, providence or miracle? <laughs> miracle. It became a serpent and Moses fled from it. I mean, he was afraid of God a few minutes ago. Now he's afraid of the snake. Things aren't going well for Moses. But the Lord said to him, stretch out your hand and grasp it by the tail. And so he stretched out his hand and he caught it. And it became a staff in his hand. And notice verse 5. Please, if you haven't been paying attention, pay attention to verse 5. 
Here's what the Lord says his point is. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. That was the point of the miracle. They'll believe you, Moses. And you can read the rest of it. God gives him some other signs here for him to do. And then he multiplies sign upon sign upon sign when he gets to Egypt. And not even Pharaoh can deny. Not even the magicians can deny. Not even the leaders of Israel can deny. Regardless of what Moses was before, he is now God's man. His message must be true. Get ready to leave town. We're going with Moses. You see, beloved, that's what the signs were for. God was doing something new. The people were no way they were going to believe it unless God showed up and did miracles. And this he did. Clearly, God says that he gave Moses the power to perform the miracles and signs for the purpose of authenticating both his authority as God's messenger and the truth of his message. And there's much more that we can see about this as you read through. Not only about Moses, but about Joshua. When Moses died, it's the first thing he did. Everybody get ready, we're going into Jericho. But they had a big hurdle between them. What was it? Jordan River. How are we going to cross that? <laughs> I don't know. And so he goes, and the Lord says, get the Ark of the Covenant, tell the priests when they're ankle deep, I'll take care of the rest. Step out in faith, trust me. And Joshua said, let's go. Close up your tents, pack your bags, we're going to Jericho. How are we going to get there? There's a lot of water between us and them. The Lord will make a way. And under the authority of Joshua, by the miracle of God, the Jordan River dried up. They walked across. And then when they got there, you know how they tore down the first city? <laughs> Joshua told the guys, get ready, don't bring any weapons, just bring trumpets. And when I give you the word, blow your trumpet. And the walls will fall down. And the text very clearly says, when that happened, all the people said, now we know that Joshua is God's man. How did they know? Miracles. Miracles. But what happened to the miracles, the miraculous gift that Moses and Joshua had? Um, we don't know what happened to it. It just ceased. You don't find any miracles happening after Joshua. In fact, it gets to a point where Joshua's still in charge, but he's not doing miracles anymore. We know of those first two. And I don't know, maybe you could argue something else along the way, but really those were the two. And then what happened to the miraculous gift? We don't know. It ceased. Did God say it was going to cease? No. Did he tell us when it was going to cease? No. Does he identify after the fact when it ceased? No. It just disappeared. No explanation. And nothing happens. No more miracles at the hands of men until, okay, we just entered the promised land with Joshua and we've got Samuel, kind of the, uh, the first of the judges, sort of, 
Samuel, and then Saul, the first king, and then David, and then Solomon, divided kingdom. Israel goes north, Judah stays south, two kingdoms. They start drifting away from God. They drift, and they drift, and they drift, and they drift, and they drift. Now we're in the days of Jezebel. I mean, things have really gone bad in Israel. They have completely forgotten the word of God. They've completely strayed from the covenant of God. And so God sends them a messenger, and his name is Elijah, the first of the great prophets. And Elijah comes. And he says, I'm a prophet. And the people said, how do we know? And he says, watch, I can do this. <laughs> Remember the uh, prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? And the whole issue was, I mean, Israel drifted so far, they didn't know who was God anymore. Who's God? God's covenant people don't even know who their covenant partner is anymore. It'd be like saying, who's my wife? Which one of you? It's my wife, my husband. I don't know. We're so confused. And so Elijah comes and he says, we're going to settle this once and for all. Bring all your prophets. And here's what we'll do. Build two altars. And, uh, but here's the deal. The way the game works is we're both going to make sacrifices. You go first. And you're going to call on your God. We're going to call on our God. But the deal is you can't set fire to the altar. God has to do it. God has to set fire to the altar. So you cry out to Baal to set fire to your altar, and I'll cry out to Jehovah when it's my turn, and we'll see which God is God. You see the point of the miracle? And so the prophets of Baal start crying out to their God, and they pray all day, all afternoon, and they start whipping themselves and lacerating, lacerating themselves, and they're bleeding, and they're crying, and they're singing, and they're chanting, and, they're, and, uh, and Elijah's having no mercy on them. Maybe he's on vacation. Call louder. Even one point in the text, he literally says, maybe he's in the bath 